I think I thought that I would write the novel, try to get it published, then quit my day job, you know, keep my health insurance, whatever. But I was struggling with kind of like getting the book out the door in its final form. And I was just like, oh, I feel so overwhelmed with work and writing. So I went to my manager and I was like, I'm sorry, I have to quit because I want to be a writer. And he's like, that's a terrible idea. Like, <laughs> how are you, you going to support your family? And I was like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> so I didn't quit. Took a few iterations to get right, you know, sort of seesawing back and forth between him being like too cute and cuddly and him just being kind of like a monster. But a lot of the things that, you know, might frustrate a person about him, I think are the same things that frustrate people about me. I call myself a post-processor. So like, you know, if my house explodes, like I won't have feelings about it until like three months later. So <laughs> I'm still kind of just trying to figure out what happened and how and just, I'm extremely grateful because I think it might be different for different artists, but I thought if, if only one person read my book and resonated with it, that would be like more than enough. Welcome to another brand new bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I am Natalie Jameson. I think I preferred it when you sung it. Did you? Mm. I, I'm not going to. I was about to, but then no. Oh, you no. nearly did, didn't you? You no. nearly did. Do not lure me down easy. that horrible I, I path. I you to do that. <laughs> no. Um, so today we have uh, somebody that I've brought to the table that has a really nice story that I won't spoil because we do it in our introduction to her. But I think it's really nice that these podcasts are proving a veritable feast of a discovery ground for ourselves too, to, you know, seek out new authors and people whose writing we haven't sampled before. I've just sat here in awe that your school came off the top of your head, didn't it? You've not written you that. No. A veritable feast of what did you say? <laughs> I can't repeat it. I've said it oh, once. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. That should be the banner for our podcast. Uh, yeah. So no, I'm, I listen, it's one of the things I love about doing it is that, you know, I go to you, if you read this, you've got to read this. It's amazing. And you do the same to me. And it's, you know, inevitably, I'd say nine times out of 10, we do both like what the other one has suggested, which is really good. Even though if we both went into the same bookshop tonight, we would buy different books, wouldn't we? Ooh, I used to, it doesn't happen very often, but I used to love a late night drunken book buy excursion. Yeah. Yeah. Does it not happen now just because your world's gone online? Because I end up doing those drunken buys, but on, on Amazon. Uh, okay. Yeah, I don't do it so much. I'm, I'm quite restrained of consuming alcohol and clicking on buy things online. But if I was yeah. in a shop, like... Yeah. Gloves are off. Gloves yeah. are off. But anyway. at least it's books. You're not going to regret those. I the last no. time I did it, right, I got in and I thought, oh, you know what I'd love now? Some sweets. No sweets in the house. So I opened the laptop, went to Amazon, right? Refresher choose. Remember the refresher choose? Yeah. Yellow yeah. with the white shirt. Yeah. Home. So I thought I'd ordered a pick and mix size bag, right? Mm -hmm. And then the following day, the doorbell goes, and this guy's got a massive box. And I'm like, I don't think that's for us, mate. He said, Williams. I went, Oh, it is for us. What could that be then? And I opened it and it was a kilogram bag of refresher chews. <laughs> and obviously leather, I clicked on the wrong size. Yeah. This yeah. Thing was enormous. There were so many chews in there. And how many are That's left now? Oh, I gave a load away, just literally anyone. Do you like these? Oh, yeah, I have a handful of these. Sure, yeah, definitely, because otherwise I'm going to have no teeth left. <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't do that often, but I used to love, I might have said this earlier on in another podcast, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, but there used to be a Borders in London on Oxford Street that yeah, was I used to love that. Multiple Multi floors. Multi floors. Yeah. Great magazines as well yeah, as great books. cafe in it, yeah, you know, so you get super. really nice coffee and stuff. And um yeah, me and my husband would 
uh, pre-kids. But yeah, I think I think it closed before our kids came along, I think. But anyway, we'd kind of, if we went out for dinner or we're going somewhere and it was open till like 11 p.m., I think. So we'd kind of just pop into Borders and then just have a browse and do that thing where you spend like an hour in a bookshop and, you know, might have had one or two beers and it was just the most joyous thing lovely really lovely well while we reminisce about that you can listen to cecilia rabes and her debut everything's fine here's natalie with the full details So today's guest is a case of beautiful serendipity, I think, because I'd already nabbed a preview of her debut novel, Everything's Fine, but I hadn't started reading it yet. And then we interviewed Curtis Sittenfeld for this very podcast. And as regular listeners should know, at the end, we get recommendations from the authors that we've been speaking to. And the recommendation that Curtis was raving about was Everything's Fine by Cecilia Rabes, which she had about... I think she had like the last chapter to go and you could tell she was itching to finish the book. She was like, this is so good. And I can't believe that I haven't quite finished it yet. Um, And because of Curtis's incredible recommendation too, I then went and put that right to the top of my reading pile, raced through this book, loved it. So I am so happy that she's here now. Cecilia, hi. How does it feel to know that she loved your book? Yeah, I think that definitely knocked my socks clean off um, because not only, you know, does she have sort of an amazing reputation and obviously an amazing list of books, but I am a huge fan of hers. And actually, I read her books kind of regularly to the point where my boyfriend's like, are you reading that book again? Like, I'll buy you a new book. So when I heard that she had tweeted about my book, I was just like, oh my God, I, I guess I'm done. Like, I don't need to write again. No one else needs to read me again. It feels like this is the pinnacle of my existence. So that's how it felt. Um, More generally, I think when people read and kind of resonate with the work, it's just an incredible gift. And it's funny because I think as a writer, people sort of try to inure you to rejection and sort of get you comfortable with, you know, people sort of passing or saying a polite no. And so I don't necessarily feel prepared for all of the positive reactions to my work. So I'm still kind of learning how to receive kindness gracefully. Have you managed to have a conversation with Curtis yet, either on social media or in person? Yes, I have actually. So I sent her kind of like an over-the-top fan letter after (laughs) I saw that tweet. And she was extremely kind to respond um, and so I don't know that she considers me a friend, but I definitely consider her a friend. <laughs> That's so cool. So cool. I want to she take you it. right back then, if I can, so that you can explain the origin of this novel, because this is a debut for you. So if I say to you, Donald Trump is destroying my marriage, is that the origin <laughs> point? Or do we go back further than that? Yeah, I think, you know, we could go all the way to the beginning. Like I always grew up loving to read and loving to write. And so I think when I sat down to write a novel, Um, It was more because I just felt called to write, but I didn't have any specific idea about what I was going to write. And I've always loved love stories. So actually, when I heard that Curtis was writing a book called Romantic Comedy, I kind of short-circuited because I was like, oh my God, my favorite writer, my favorite genre. (laughs) So I always knew that I wanted to write something. And then I kind of decided that I wanted to write a love story, but I didn't really know much beyond that. So I didn't have like plot, character, setting. I was just like, I'm going to write a love story. And I've said this before, but I I think that for me, even the very best love stories often feel like they exist 
and binary. So there's kind of like the bubblegum rom-com on the one hand and war-torn lovers and somebody dies at the end on the other. And I really wanted to write something in between. I wanted something that was kind of more real and more nuanced and felt really contemporary. So I had this idea, but I didn't know exactly how to execute it. Um, and that's where this Donald Trump is destroying my marriage piece comes in. So it was 2018. It was right in the middle of Donald Trump's presidency. We didn't know that then. It could have been the beginning. Um, maybe it will be. Um, wow. And I just, yeah, sorry. I know. Um, I know. Or maybe, it's a horror story. <laughs> I shouldn't presume anything. I shouldn't presume. But um, it depends when I people are listening to this of, episode. I mean, he might mm -hmm. be president again by the time yeah, you get into this, or yeah. he could be in jail. Yeah. 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 Either. Yeah. Is seemingly equally possible, which is, yeah. I think, speaks to a lot of the questions that I had about how did we get here? Uh, who are we as a nation? I think I thought I kind of understood, especially um, maybe incorrectly on the heels of the Obama era, where, you know, there was this national rhetoric, literally of hope and unity, and then it somehow became, you know, almost the opposite, extremely fractured political discourse. And so that was the moment and I had a lot of questions about it. So that was on my mind, but then also this kind of love story that I was trying to write was on my mind. And so when I read that article, there was an article with that title in New York Magazine. I actually didn't wanna click on it initially because I think I was a bit uh, exhausted with the discourse about like agree to disagree, just reach across the aisle. So I felt like it wasn't, I don't know, it felt like a false equivalence in a lot of ways. And yet I clicked. Um, <laughs> and then the article basically described these relationships between people who are opposites politically and how they were kind of doing okay until Donald Trump showed up. And then it kind of exposed all of the fractures in their relationship and they were then not doing so okay. And I was like, that's really interesting. I don't fully understand even during Obama's era, like how they could have found themselves connecting. And so I think I just wanted to understand how that could be. And the way that I kind of understand the world or work through things is by writing. And so it just felt very, felt like kismet to kind of combine all the questions I had about the state of the nation with this idea that I had to write. And just really before we, I know we both want to explore that more with you. Uh, one more thing I've read online that I want to clarify. It was either write this yeah. book or climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Is that oh, true? Oh my goodness. That's an offhand comment I made, but it's sort of true <laughs> in the sense that, well, one, my family, they love to climb, like show them a mountain, they'll climb up it. So they were all going to Kilimanjaro around that time. And I was invited, but I was really out of shape, but I was also turning 30 and I was like, I got to do something <laughs> like, you know, so I'd always, like I said, love to read and love to write. And so it felt like now or never. Um, and I'm now quite a bit past 30. So it's not like I'm 31 and I just like did this all last year. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of the moment when I decided that I wanted to commit to the project of writing a novel and see, you know, if I could build a career as a writer. Um, and again, I feel like we're kind of peppering you with things that you've said, which I realize is always a really weird thing to do because it's odd <laughs> right, to it's have like... To clarify though, right? Well, no, it is. But also it kind of leads me on to that. I saw something because obviously I went on and had a look back at some of your your stories and things on Instagram. And um, it was about a year ago that you said that uh, 
in case you missed it, I wrote a novel. Ask me about it. It's been a journey. On the way, I got a lot of advice, good, bad and interesting. So I wanted to know, can you share with us something that was good, bad and interesting? Oh, that's a fun question. Um, so I've actually gotten a lot of good advice. Um, I think the most generally applicable advice that I find useful is just to finish what you start because, yeah. you know, everyone can tell you about a mediocre to bad book that they've read, but you've literally never seen like a half finished book on a bookshelf. And so I think that's kind of like the one thing that got me through, you know, sort of all the ups and downs of writing a first novel. Um, so I think that one, I think I'll always sort of share with writers who mm -hmm. want kind of high level advice. Um, bad, I also have gotten a lot of bad <laughs> advice. I think specific to this project, not one, but actually a number of people. And I can understand why they said this, but I also think it's insane. And it's that I should just get rid of all the politics in the book. And I was like, what would, what exactly would be left here? Um, <laughs> That's so, so much that of was, the story. I yeah, I think that just kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, it's sort of um, a live wire touching a nerve in a lot of ways, this story. Um, but I think I couldn't have told a story mm -hmm. like this without the particulars of the story. Um, no, I agree with that. But when I, as a reader, um, you know, the whole premise for when Harry met Sally is can a guy and a girl be friends, right? Yeah. I thought the premise for this is can a guy and a girl have completely opposing views and still come together? That's, that's what I thought this was. And if you remove those views from this, I don't know what you're left with, really. It's, it's central. It's key to your love story, right? Yeah, I mean, thank you. I think that's accurate. Um, thank you. So I'm not sure exactly what what the recommendation was at that point, but maybe, I don't know, something they liked about the book or something they connected to, but they just felt triggered by the, the sort of political content. And what would you say is something interesting then <laughs> to wrap up that bit? Yeah, let's think about interesting. Um, was it the person who said, finish your last 5,000 words at top of Kilimanjaro? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I get there's a lot of like kind of really um, tactical or sort of cheat code type of advice that I can find funny. Like sometimes people are like, I've heard this, take the last sentence of a paragraph and move it to the first sentence. And I don't know, it's supposed to do something. And I've tried that and it's like, uh, now my paragraph just doesn't make sense. But that was interesting. <laughs> um, I've like never that. heard I that think, before. Think, yeah. Yeah, I've heard it all because I've like scoured the internet for every bit of writing advice there is. But I think basically advice that's just too sort of personal or too tied to your own idiosyncratic process tends to not be useful to anyone but you or people just like you. Uh, so you mentioned the political aspect to it, and obviously it's central to the story, as I said. Is it true that because of your concerns about potentially triggering writers, that you did a whole different version of this, but in the Reagan era to see whether it changed the dynamic at all? Is that true? That is true. Yeah. So I think a lot of new writers can sort of, you know, feel like they hit a wall at one point, you know, after you start trying to get an agent or start trying to put the work out there, sometimes you don't get like the immediate yes. So I, at some point was like, I feel pretty good about 
the meat and bones of this all, but there's obviously this like the T word Trump that is turning off a lot of people who are like, oh, just write this book without Trump and it'll be great. So I was like, how do I do that? Um, and I thought to myself, well, what if this were sort of historical fiction as it were? And so I kind of like roll the clock back 30 years and try to like just do a complete rewrite of the book mapping, you know, scene by scene, 1980, 1984 to like 2008, 2012. And I was shocked. Like, I guess I should know more history, but I was shocked by how um, perfect the parallels were. Like everything from Make America Great Again, people mm. were saying that. Mm. Everything from Dr. Fauci was in the mix. You know, there was obviously not a pandemic well i guess in some sense the aids crisis yeah it was the aids um, epidemic wasn't it yeah so th there was just so much um that i didn't even have to remix i just kind of like changed the names and the dates and that actually funnily enough instead of making me feel like i should just write the story in the 80s made me feel more confident that i could tell the story in sort of like the more present tense just because it felt like history was absolutely repeating itself. And this was sort of just our American story, at least for the time being, whether or not people, you know, felt like maybe it would be a tough sell. I just think that it was a story that felt like it could or should be told. So did, does that exist somewhere? Does, is that like a separate novel? That On exists? my hard drive. Wow. Yeah. Is there anything you can do with that? I mean, I did think like, you know, when you're fantasizing as like a writer that if this book, well, this was even before I had an agent. So it was like a right. very fantastical fantasy. But I was like, if this book does really well, then maybe people are going to want to read like the same book again, but set 30 years earlier. And I was like, I designed a cover for this one and a cover <laughs> for that one. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's like almost the same story. It just has like a little bit more like hairspray. <laughs> and I also wonder, because in that we should say as well, so... Jess and Josh, your two main characters. Jess is black and Josh is white. Did you try flipping the races as well at any point and just to sort of see where it all landed? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that that actually did happen. Um, I thought, obviously, the dynamic between a white man and a black woman is extremely fraught for many reasons. There's like a lot of historical baggage there. And so I was like, what if he's, a white woman instead or what if he's a black man instead so I went through all these possible iterations to kind of make it feel more let's say palatable but the story just didn't ring as true I think um yeah I was trying to like somehow I guess have my cake and eat it too and it just didn't work I think you know the story is what it is and it either works or doesn't because of who these characters are yeah we should probably explain just a little bit more about it before we get you to read for us so it's as natalie mentioned it's it's jess and josh and we meet them they kind of just around leaving college time and then we kind of follow them through their lives together which intersect at various points and then their careers intersect but they have completely opposing views and yet they don't seem to frustrate each other enough to completely walk away from each other right that, that's probably as much as I want to say do you want to add anything to that that's spoiler free I think that was well said um I think if people are curious like how these two people encounter one another I think it's because like you said they go to school together they work together and so that was important I think 
for me to feel like it was realistic or plausible. Like they're kind of mm-hmm. thrown together initially and then they slowly build a relationship. So should we, should we hear of it? Is that okay? You're right to read us a bit. Yes, I would love to. So this is actually the UK edition, which is very exciting. <laughs> but everything's misspelled for some reason. <laughs> um, so this is, this, is, this is the point in the novel where they are warming up to each other. So they've become friends um, through spending time together at work. Um, they're not, you know, their relationship's not gone further than that. Um, but this is the first time that Jess is visiting Josh at his home. They're gonna have some drinks. Josh's apartment is a surprise. Jess was certain he would live in an airless glass tower or a building with brochures in the lobby. He buzzes her in and stands at the top of the staircase, watching her climb each flight, circling closer and closer until they are face to face on the top floor. He sweeps his arm across the threshold and says, come on in. Jess peers around, walks in a slow circle around the room. She looks up at the ceiling, really looks at it as if it's painted, as if she's in a museum, and Josh says, okay, that's enough. It's different from what I thought it would be, Jess says. What did you expect? I don't know. A bookshelf full of Ayn Rand, maybe a framed copy of the Constitution, piles of money in really neat stacks so you can count them every night before bed, a hairless cat, golf clubs, a Reagan Bush 84 poster, posters just covering every square inch of the wall human heads in the freezer. He looks hurt. Sorry, Jess says. That was a joke. And I'll leave it there. Very nicely done. So I wanted to ask you, how difficult was it for you as a writer to make Josh dislikable enough for Jess, but not so dislikable that we thought he was a dick too? That was a real tightrope. Um, <laughs> I, it definitely took a few iterations to get right, you know, sort of seesawing back and forth between him being like, too cute and cuddly and him just being kind of like a monster and the kind of secret to that was I made him not quite an avatar of myself like we obviously are quite different have different politics for sure but a lot of the things that you know might frustrate a person about him I think are the same things that frustrate people about me And I, you know, there are people who love me, like I'm pretty happy with myself. And so I thought that if I could sort of imbue him with some of what makes me both, you know, fun and frustrating, that could sort of render him as both of those things. See, now I want to know. I've only seen your fun (laughs) side so far. What's frustrating about you? He likes an easy answer. He you know, wants to see the world in black and white. Uh I think he sort of defers to data a lot. Like I tend Uh, to do that. Um, You just want like a number to tell you everything. And unfortunately it doesn't and it can't, but I think there's just sort of this tendency to be like, oh, I I read it in The Economist. So (laughs) that has to be true. So you want Um, an evidence-based logical solution to every problem? Correct, correct. And sometimes maybe force it on problems that it just would never be appropriate for. Which means that it's the perfect way for me to say as well that, and it was there in your reading too, that the book's really funny as well. You know, it's it's mm. laugh out loud funny in so many places. Did you, is that just something that comes very naturally when you're writing it? I mean, I think it must do because it, it feels so natural when you read it. But did you have somebody who sense checked if it was making people laugh? Yeah, I think that's a great question because the the 
parts of, I guess there's sort of, I'll take a step back. There's kind of like three, three people or three entities on the page. You know, there's sort of like me as the writer, but then there's kind of like the narrator, this third, close third sort of observer of this world. And then, you know, obviously they're the characters themselves. And I think the characters can be funny. I think the narrator can be funny. And I think I am not funny. And so <laughs> I think you can see sometimes when I'm trying to be funny and actually my editor probably excised all of those parts of the book um, and I'm not because I think why the book, you know, can make you laugh and can make you smile is because I'm sort of just observing the world as I see it. And I find the world to be quite a funny and amusing place, even when it's also difficult or challenging. And so I'm just kind of trying to accurate, accurately represent um, how I see the world. And I think that whenever a writer does that, it will be exactly as funny as they see the world. And then I've also used humor, you know, to, I think, create a point of connection between the characters. So, you know, they are different, they see the world differently, they meet the world differently, you know, the world treats them differently. So the one thing I, not the one, but one of the things I think they have in common is that they can kind of laugh together at the same things or they share a sense of humor. But yeah, I think um, the only humor checks I had were my editor being like, Cecilia, this isn't, this isn't funny. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question and then I will answer the question I've asked after you, if that's all right. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think the key is, but I want to know once you've put this together and you've done all the various edits on it, what was the key ingredient you felt it needed for the romance to be conceivable and believable? That's a tough question. Yeah, I maybe will somewhat repeat myself. Um, I think the the banter um, is part of what I think makes it believable because when they connect with each other, you can see that if you strip away all of the artifice, all of sort of like the identity boxes that they tick, there's just like this easy kind of conversation that they fall into. And I think they're both sort of entertained by one another and so I think that's what I leaned on most um, to make it feel like a real relationship or to feel like a relationship that you might root for um, but I would be interested to hear what you have to mm -hmm. say and actually I think there's one sort of I don't want to call it a cheap trick but like a couple of points in the book I think this isn't really a spoiler but like when they have like the code to their house and maybe it's kind of interesting that they think about the code the same way. Things like that, I think where you can see their minds are sort of spinning in the same way, I think is is why if it feels believable to you, it does. Oh, hugely believable. I felt it was compassion. I felt that there's a huge amount of mm. compassion between the two main characters and that um, they almost want to get beyond the kind of obstacles but the, the different political views they have, I felt were obstacles to getting along. And I found it a really uplifting book on that, on that platform, because I felt that actually the message of the book is that love can conquer anything. And people will laugh at that and sneer at that. And it was cheesy and whatever. But actually, if you can get beyond some of these political disparate polarized views they have, they actually just love each other. And there's a huge amount of compassion between the two. And that's what made me veer from laughing to then going, oh, and, and nearly spilling a tear. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I feel like 
you and I, I mean, I hope different readers read it differently, but I feel like one could equally say that love does not conquer all because they have the love, um, but then the sort of external pressure of, you know, feeling like they are like playing for different political teams, I think really undermines that love, you know? Yeah. And again, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I kind of, I love the, you bring it up throughout the book, just how much we all have to compromise who we really are and what we're really feeling to try and fit in in the world. And Mm -hmm. I found some of that chilling, (laughs) like in in a really satisfying way to read, but just a really acute observation of of how kind of life goes on and the things that we'll accept and that we won't accept and where our kind of lines are for that. Um, I wanted to bring up, uh, there was a piece, I mean, there are so many pieces I could quote at you from uh, the book that I loved, but this bit that deals with, I was going to say casual racism, but racism is never casual. It's just that white people sometimes think it is, I think. Um, So there's this bit where you write, uh, once in the bathroom at Smokey Joe's, two drunk girls had tapped Jess on the shoulder as she was washing her hands in front of the mirror. In the rear view, she had watched them debate whether to approach her, giggling and nervous, as if she were a celebrity that they were afraid to talk to. Finally, one of them had said, excuse me. And Jess had said, yes. And one of the drunk girls had said, My friend and I, we just wanted to tell you that you're the prettiest black girl we've ever seen. And at first, Jess had been flattered. The world was big. She was beautiful. But then a minute later, she thought, wait, which again, it's it's not funny, but it's so well observed. So I guess it's quite a redundant question to say that you must have been storing up so many microaggressions that again, aren't even micro that you could just kind of pour into this book as well to make all that feel so real. Yeah, well, actually, I'm going to sort of paraphrase Curtis Sittenfeld, because I think she said it best, that when you're writing, or, you know, when she's writing, and it's the same for me, you're sort of like a bird building a nest, and you're just like grabbing whatever is useful. Like, I've heard the birds, like, will grab, like, you know, cigarette filters and, like, make a nest out of it, whatever trash is available. So, yes, in a lot of ways, I'm, when I write, I think of it not as you know, using or flexing my imagination. It's almost like I'm just collecting observations that I've made and saved over many years. And so, yeah, I think some of it is, um, you know, microaggressions that I myself have experienced. Others are things that I've witnessed or even read about. Um, And so you kind of like collect everything that feels useful and then, you know, create something that feels true, I think. And do you think, I mean, I guess it's the hope that some people will read this and recognize themselves not for the good necessarily while reading some passages of it. Definitely, I think so. Yeah, I think uh, part of making the book hopefully feel real is representing people sort of full 360, like warts and all. And so also, though, I hope that, you know, just acknowledging that people are flawed doesn't, you know, make them seem like villains or like even unlikable, just kind of like real people who some you feel more or less connected to for various reasons. But yeah, I think I would hope that people are open to recognizing themselves or people that they know or people that they love and maybe will understand the things about those people that they do or don't love, perhaps through the lens of this story, because I think having a little bit of distance can often help you see things differently or more clearly even. 
Mm-hmm. There's a scene in the book that I really enjoyed. I wanted to ask you about, and it's a scene where there's a there's a numbers game taking place, and uh, one of the big bosses always wins until Jess finally plays. Had that had that happened to you at a corporate, or is that where did that come from? That seemed just so realistic. Oh no, you know it's funny that didn't happen, but it would be great like if I were really good at cards and it did. That scene was actually inspired. Speaking of being a bird collecting sort of objects for my nest was inspired by someone that I worked with and it wasn't a difficult situation like in the book but she just was like a master at this card game and it was just incredible to watch her like people would play and it would feel like oh maybe this person's a little better maybe that person's a little better who's gonna win and then she would enter the scene and it would just be like complete demolition and I just thought that was really interesting dynamic um, and so I turned it into something definitely not what it was, but sort of like loosely inspired by her prowess with that card game. It reads so uh, in such a cinematic way. Has it been optioned already for film or television? What's happening there? Uh, nothing's really happening there. I think it's, well, it's just uh, tough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think uh, actually I wonder if in the UK it might have a better shot, but I think it's sort of a tough road because it's quite a tender subject, I think. You know, I don't know that networks are keen to go out and sort of promote a show about Trump. I'm using air quotes. So I don't mm. think it's about Trump, but, no, you know, you not. might reduce it to that. But I think maybe in the UK, where I think people can absolutely relate to all of this, it's almost like talking about parallels between like 1984 USA and like 2012 USA, I think that there's also those parallels between the UK and the US right now. So I think it resonates, but it's not quite as um, raw a nerve. So maybe, I don't know if you know anyone in the UK. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could totally turn this into a Brexit. <laughs> that could be the political divide. That- yeah, but, but that's what I was about to say, really. Isn't, it, isn't, it a, isn't the, your enemy here, perhaps with television, is the geopolitical climate? Mm-hmm, because for sure. you know these the types of friction and um separation that you get in countries that we have both here and in your country now they occur when people are skint and they've got no money mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of forces animating all of the let's say polarization to like put a fine point on it like globally yeah it's not just in the u.s not no. just in the uk um but yeah it sort of is starting to all kind of look i think pretty similar Mm, I agree. And I wonder what it will take to shift it. But then I wonder if, say, five years down the track, if things start to look sunnier, whether all of a sudden your book then becomes a really precinct piece of historical drama. You know what? I think I think it I think it will be, because one thing I've observed is even as sort of the political climate shifts in small ways over the past has shifted in small ways over the past few years, I've noticed that the reception to the book has shifted. And I don't know that people fully appreciate that because I think most people are like, hey, like I'm sort of a somewhat objective, rational reader. If if you say that about yourself, um, I'm not going to feel differently about this book just because like Trump was on the news yesterday and he wasn't today. But I actually think that definitely has an impact on the reading experience and also even like your interpretation of the story. So I think when I sold this book, it was right after... Joe Biden had been elected president and it did feel like this was all behind us in some sense. 
and now obviously you know Trump is running for president again and it's sort of like history repeating itself and I think the book may go down slightly differently now and then maybe hopefully in another couple of years um, it may read differently again and so I think that's that's working as intended I wanted the book to kind of give sort of a Rorschach test vibe where maybe not only different readers could read it differently, but like the same reader in a different context yeah, could read it differently. Yeah. I think so too. And I, I think I might've got a different thing from the ending than you did by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. So uh, well, shall I ask you while you're here, did I get it wrong then? Have I just been, a, have I been overly optimistic about your book? No, that's the thing. There, there truly is no wrong answer. Actually, oh, there's no answer. So I don't, if, if people ask me like what I think or, do they stay together? Do they break up? What I? I'm like, honestly, like I wrote the end and I just walked away from that. I was like, it's too stressful. I don't want to know what happens next. Um, so I think that I, like <laughs> probably any reader, have questions. Like I'm left with questions at the end, you know? If, if and only you knew somebody on you could ask. Day, <laughs> I know. On a good day, I'm like, yes, like love conquers all. And on a bad day, I'm like, these kids, they just didn't stand a chance, you know? Mm. Does this mean then, because I know you're writing another book, and I do know, I'm not going to kind of be coy with you. I know that the other book is completely different to this. I've read that already online. But would you ever revisit these two? Because it's open, you know, you could revisit them, couldn't you? I definitely could. I, I actually just don't know um, that I know what happens next. I genuinely don't know. I mean, I guess I'm going to, like, get a little personal on Maine, but, like, what I think I'm missing now is actually in the aftermath of Trump's presidency I actually had had relationships with people like Josh that I kind of threw away and I was like you know I think we're on different paths like the sort of geopolitical moment is forcing us to pick sides a little bit it feels more high stakes than perhaps it used to and so I don't actually even think I know what someone like Josh is up to these days or where his head is at, or if he's still like on that Trump train. So I probably have to do a lot more research, but I don't like immediately have a sense of what the story could look like in, you know, 2017, 18, 19, 20. Oh, you know, I, my only wonder was whether you could do something where in, I don't know, five, 10, 15, we chronicle their romance through the then political background so the politics is always there mm. key part of their relationship and we watch how they mature because obviously one's views change as one gets older alongside how the political landscape changes in the background and whether there'd be something in that for you that was something i would like to read anyway put it that way i'm not done with these two. Uh, yeah <laughs> i think it'd be yeah i mean i do say that their relationship kind of you know traces the arc of like 20 like 2008 to 2016 like that sort of changing political landscape so i can imagine whatever the relationship looks like it would continue to trace whatever the arc of our politics looks like but maybe i don't have enough distance to know what that is like i'm like kind of confused by where we are at the moment but i think it's um it, it feels like it's such a i mean i know to say it's a timely book is an obvious thing to say but you know like you were saying there about kind of friends that you're not no longer friends with it's kind of what makes the book so great in many ways is because you just address those things head on and so often we're not addressing 
those really big questions about why some people feel one way and how, you know, a lot of the rhetoric is, you know, we should talk to people with opposing views, but it's really mm-hmm. difficult. It's really difficult mm-hmm. to do. And I, I really kind of love that your your book offers very different ways and, you know, a variety of ways that you can do that. So it feels really useful. There are many people I know that I would love to read it. But I also wonder, you know, as we were just saying, Phil and I, reading different things, it must be so satisfying as an author to probably get quite a different reaction from so many different people. Yeah, it it definitely is. Um, I don't know how much I thought about what that would feel like as I was writing, but I definitely, yeah, my intention was for the story to feel like it could be almost two different or two or more different experiences, like layered in one book. I just felt like that would be the most interesting. But yeah, when I hear different people, different people's different takes, it makes me feel like I know that person better. It's almost like, yeah, (laughs) some kind of like test. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you scared? Are you frustrated? Um, Are you all of those things? Do you have questions? Do you have answers? It feels like it's telling me something about people when they tell me how they've read the book. So that's kind of a fascinating side effect. Definitely. Now I want to know what it's told you about me. Or do I want to know? That? I don't know. <laughs> it's oh, like what? reading tea oh, It's like, yeah. I'm everybody's therapist now. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, some of the information I gleaned about the book was from Shondaland, which is Shonda Rhimes' company. And they made you a book mm-hmm. pick. Um, I just wonder how you feel about how this debut has resonated with people. Um, for the uninitiated, she's written pretty much any great American drama in the last 15 years. Uh, I think, yeah, it's similar to how I felt when, you know, Curtis Sittenfeld mm. had not only read my book, but bothered to tell people that she read it and enjoyed it. It's just extremely surreal. Like, I call myself a post-processor. So, like, you know, if my house explodes, like I won't have feelings about it until like three months later. So <laughs> I'm still kind of just trying to, you know, figure out what happened and how and just, I'm extremely grateful because I think, you know, it might be different for different artists, but I thought if if only one person read my book and resonated with it, that would be like more than enough. And I found that in my agent who is just like, I think one of the best readers of this book I could ask for. And then, you know, I met my editor and I met my UK editor and I was like, okay, I'm good guys. Like, this is enough. And I think one thing about publishing that surprised me was how much of a slow burn it is. So, you know, by the time the book is actually published, so many people have read it, you know, influencers, marketers, so forth. So I feel like it's, it's, I'm good. I'm good. Like I have more than I ever could have hoped for. Um, so it's really just hard to, I don't know, hard to like make space in my heart for all of the amazing reactions to the book. I don't know. Which is a good thing. And on the sort of practical life side of things, are you, is there still a day job that you have to do? Can you just write full time? Is this it now? Yeah. So I actually, um, it's kind of a funny story. Like I, before I think I thought that I would write the novel try to get it published then quit my day job you know keep my health insurance whatever but I was struggling with kind of like getting the book out the door in its final form this is at the point when I 
like rewritten it in the past. And I was just like, oh, I feel so overwhelmed with work and writing. So I went to my manager and I was like, I'm sorry, I have to quit because I want to be a writer. And he's like, that's a terrible idea. Like, <laughs> how are you, you going to support your family? And I was like, you know what, you're right. <laughs> so I didn't quit. And then, you know, I, at that point I had met my agent and then quickly thereafter sold the book. So then I was like, okay, now I'm going to quit because I'm a real writer. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, I'm not sure. So I didn't quit. Then, yeah, this this happened for like nine months until about six months ago. I finally was like, I really want to dedicate myself to writing for real, for real. And so thank you for everything. But I'm now no longer employed by Google and I just write. Yeah, so I do that. I have two kids now, so that also does take up a lot of time and yeah. mental energy. But in theory, I'm a full-time writer. I also want to know if like when you left that the last time with your manager with a yep no problem I'll I'll hold the position for like two years like three years <laughs> like, you know, just no like I think at that point I was so distracted that I think he was it was probably a blessing in disguise <laughs> you know what that now that story explains what happened earlier because I put your name into Google and Google just shrugged <laughs> just, just said she's dead to us yeah. <laughs> That's funny. and on um the uk us relations i'm always fascinated so i i studied for a year in america when i was at university and i'm still was still so surprised by how culturally different it was which i wasn't expecting at all so i was wondering if there were any particular americanisms because we're speaking to you from san francisco today i believe um That's right. any, anything you had to change for the uk edition Actually, no, um, nothing that I had to change except for legally. I think the copyright regulations in the UK are a bit stricter than in the US. So some like Beyonce lyrics I had to change. But I would say personally, my biggest concern was at the sort of like ninth hour, I added a joke about the Kool-Aid man. And this is actually an example of me trying to be funny, not like in the context <laughs> of like the narrative or the characters like expressing humor mm. and I was like is this joke gonna work but I just and I think my editor you know had already done her final pass so like no one was there to kind of keep me in check so <laughs> I'm nervous that that one won't go over but you know what it is what it is which well, we should probably just clear that up now right the kool-aid man what how would we know that Nat? so I think it's like uh don't drink the kool-aid right so um, that's kind of like a historical thing that people might know from, was it Jim Jones? Was he the one who did the Kool-Aid thing, the cult leader who killed loads of people? But then the Kool-Aid man is like that berry-shaped man on the packet of Kool-Aid, which I think you can get in TK Maxx here, which always confuses me because it's TJ Maxx in America, right? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, it is. That's my little cultural summation. <laughs> yeah, you actually well. know a lot more about Kool-Aid than I think most Americans, <laughs> but the Kool-Aid man, like, he runs through walls and he's kind of just like amped up on, you'd think some kind of energy drink, but I guess it's just Kool-Aid. And so he's always sort of like bursting through walls. Amazing. I have loved chatting to you, Cecilia. Would you like to share some other books with us that you think people should be across as well? It can be anything like new, old, whatever you fancy. Yeah, I think I will take a page from Curtis's playbook and mm -hmm. recommend a book that actually hasn't been published yet so I'm sorry that might be a little frustrating but I think it's coming in August so very soon and the author is Emily Habeck and it's called Shark Heart and it is I think like my book an unconventional love story but that is kind of where the similarities end 
Um, the premise is that this sort of newly married young couple, very happy, very in love, um, the husband starts feeling strange and then ultimately gets a diagnosis that he's going to turn into a shark in six months. And so, yeah, it's obviously lightly or maybe a lot speculative. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, well, one, it completely lives up to the premise. So you might think, how is anybody going to pull that off? And she does it beautifully. Um, but also, it's really a meditation on love and grief and family and belonging. It's just so beautiful and weird. And I just read it in one sitting, which like Phil, it's not really a thing I do, but it was just so compelling, but also somehow quiet. Like, I don't know how she pulled it off. There's all these contradictions, but it's just a fantastic book. And I I'm highly in. recommend I want to read that by Emily Habeck. Yeah, I quite it's like great. to turn into a shark. My kid, I'd be a big hit with my kids if I turn into a shark. Uh, so that's Shark Heart, and that's Emily Habeck, mm -hmm. H-A-B-E-C-K, and that is out August 3rd, according okay. to uh, what I'm looking at right now. Okay, this one, I guess, is not the most groundbreaking recommendation, but it's the book that I finished most recently, and it's called The Guest by Emma Klein. I think it's probably a pretty big book in the UK as well, but I love it because it's, I guess it constitutes a beach read, but it's extremely tense. It's extremely satisfying in that it's building towards like this kind of epic climax, and I've been saying this um, that it's kind of like the quintessential example of a book where you just kind of fuck around and then find out. And so it's really fun. I love books that are, as was your book, easy to read. And I always mm -hmm. say that's such a compliment because I know it's not an easy thing to get a book that kind of really jumps off the page and is really satisfying and easy to read. But yeah, like I haven't read The Guest, but I know a lot of people have. Um, so yeah, I'm, I should add that to my list too. Thanks. A any more for any more? I think another book yeah I guess I could just keep going um another <laughs> book that I this is nonfiction. again I feel like some of my recs are kind of obvious so you know they're not books that other people aren't reading and wrecking either but Monsters by Claire Detterer I think is a fantastic read because I think there's been a conversation that's sort of ongoing about you know do we or how do we separate the art from the artist and she kind of tackles that question head on. And it's funny also because I feel like that book is somewhat in conversation with mine, even though one might not see the connection, just because I think my my book is sort of asking, like, how do we separate, you know, quote unquote, politics from the person? And so I thought she didn't. And also she doesn't offer easy answers. So don't go there for that. But I think she just did a really fantastic deep dive into like, what do we do when our favorite things are sullied because the people who made them are not who we want them to be? Mm. Yeah. What it, it, the little blurb I've just found online says, what's a fan to do when they love the art but hate the artist? Yeah. It's a question I have quite a lot in my house. I think lots <laughs> of people, well, you do like, right? Uh, there are loads of people that. No, because the way you said it, the reason I laughed, the way you said it, is I had an image of your kids bringing art to the dinner table and you going, no, you know. No, it wouldn't be that mean. Um, but it happens all the time with various artists and people, but they're like different degrees. I've got a friend who kind of says, can you like them up until the point where they started doing whatever the bad thing was mm. in their life? And then it's like the art 
before then still palatable but post yeah so you still listen to the well, jackson just... five but then you stop yeah <laughs> right but there's so many um kind of like axes because it's like some people the art becomes sullied and so yeah. that's an easier answer maybe because they genuinely don't appreciate it anymore but some people it's just just like always in the back of their head and it's distracting and some people are like well i like them before or i like them before i knew what if you don't know but they're doing terrible things and like do you mourn the loss of the art once you know i mean it's just complicated and i think um a lot of people feel compelled to you know use their consumption of art as the way they kind of like express their values which is sort of a different conversation about how we conflate um you know capitalism with activism but yeah it's tough and i think a lot of people just kind of like do the thing they want to do and then just don't talk about it which is another option yeah, yeah. but that's what i kind of i, I love that there's i didn't know about that book but um i love that people are addressing those things rather than just kind of ignoring them <laughs> so, mm -hmm. that sounds very satisfying to me um i will let you go in a second Cecilia I just wanted to ask us one final thing if there was anything about this whole kind of like being a debut author and you know obviously you've had such great reviews which is brilliant but is there anything that's been quite unexpected that's been maybe more bumpy than you're expecting that you could kind of pass on as advice for when Phil and I hopefully at some point <laughs> on the line have a book published oh man I mean I have like something bumpy specific to me and my book so I doubt you'll encounter that but I guess more so I can talk about it if it's interesting but I think more generally which won't probably be an issue for either of you at all I think the just like the difference between writing a book and talking about a book are just like so different and like challenge me in such different ways and I don't think I was fully mentally prepared for how to talk about my book or what it would feel like to talk about my book or just how um, detached from the experience of creating it it would feel so that was kind of a trip and I like I said I kind of get nervous talking to people so that doesn't help but if you don't I think it will still feel like a little bit weird you know compared to like sitting in your corner like head down yeah writing Typing. your thing so how, how's it yeah. how's it been like do your own appraisal now at the end of the podcast <laughs> I think okay yeah yeah <laughs> I always give myself like a c no matter what I do because it just feels like can't argue with that you know I think you've been hard on yourself yeah definitely I, I was gonna say well, like, it. like okay right I don't know as, as a bare minimum I'd be like I I can't remember that that would that would be something that I can imagine myself saying if somebody asked me a specific question or quoted something they'd be like oh where did that bit come from yeah that must like, be the toughest thing no idea. You, you wrote this how many years ago before you wrote it well yeah it's been like five years at five least, years so five years and well, two kids I started yeah I mean I can't tell you what I was doing yeah. last week <laughs> yeah well you can also you know there's a there's a good amount of, of hindsight bias or just sort of like rewriting history where somebody asks you like oh why did you name the character josh and then you can come up with a whole elaborate explanation that makes you sound really smart even though you kind of like picked it out of like popular names in 1990.com generator you know <laughs> <laughs> for sure uh, what, what was the bumpy uh bit specifically to your journey 
Oh, so this is kind of to the point of it being a slow burn when a book is released. Um, when it was first, I think when ARCs and galleys, so like the early reader copies were first put out there, there was sort of this strange narrative that emerged that the book was, I'm trying to think of exactly how they framed it, but basically that it was kind of like fetishistic or somehow like a celebration of like black, female, white, male, kind of like oppressor, um, oppressed um, romance, which obviously this book isn't, but it became, and this is, I guess, related to talking about the book, um, it became difficult for me to talk about the book um, in exactly the right way to communicate what it was and wasn't um, mm -hmm. and not feel like I was defending myself against anything. But I think that maybe is re re uh, relevant for other writers. Um, Twitter is wild. So I think that's one thing that you kind of should prepare yourself for because that's kind of where that strange narrative emerged. And so initially I was worried that people were gonna, um, I wouldn't say misread the book because I strongly believe still that there's no way to misread it. Like I mm -hmm. want people to read it in all the ways that it can be read. But I think um, I would say there's kind of like a red pill version of the book and a blue pill version of the book. And I want all the people who've like taken the red pill to read it that way and the people who don't feel ready to take the red pill to read it in maybe a different way. And I think that sometimes wires get crossed and people can feel like the book um, was trying to do something that I don't think I was trying to do. I hope that's not vague or cryptic, but no, basically, yeah, just wanting to make sure I'm understood and that the book is received with good intent. It was here by yeah, both of us at separate times as well, you know, because Natalie read this before me and then said to me, you've got to read this book. And she was right. Cause I don't do, I did this book in 24 hours. I, I never do a book in 24 hours. So that's a real rarity for me. But yeah, that is like the highest compliment because yeah, I want my books to be read and enjoyed. I mean, I think that's the books that I most value. Um, mm enjoyable even when they're doing challenging things i loved it so much and i really cannot recommend it highly enough and it's just such a it's such a thrilling romantic adventurous read um but yeah i hope that anybody listening to this is going to rush and buy one and see what we've all been talking about because it's great so thank you again thank you so much it was so nice talking to both of you it doesn't always happen, but sometimes when we do these conversations, I come away and I'm like, oh, there's still so much I would have liked to have asked Cecilia or if we had like more time, like I feel I would really like to hang out with her and pick her brain because she writes so well and so like her observational skills are so finely honed. Um, and that's what I really particularly loved about this book. And, you know, it's kind of written in this way that, you know, hopefully you've got from the chat that you've just listened to that it's really, it's just so engaging and engrossing and it's thrilling and you don't feel like you're being lectured to at all from like either no. side of wherever you may sit on the political No, I'm side. glad you said that. I wanted to stress that because we talked about politics a lot. It's not a political book, I wouldn't mm. say, in that in measure. I wouldn't buy a political book. I've had enough of it in the day. So, I mean, I don't yeah. want it in my, in my reading time. So it's not that. Don't be put off by that. Uh, and also, too, what it reminded me of, do you remember when we did TJ Newman a couple of weeks ago? Yes. And she said, she used this phrase that really stuck with me. I haven't come this far just to get this far. Mm -hmm. So we didn't touch on it with Cecilia, but I read a thing online where 
she had quite a few rejections. I mean, like, you know, double digit rejections. And she said, I don't care now if it's a hundred or a thousand, I've written this, it is going to sell. And that yeah. was that attitude she took into it. That and confidence. Um, yeah. Self-belief, that, I guess. I don't know if it's self-belief. Yeah. And but also refusal just to go, well, I've done it now. So I'm not yeah. this isn't you're not telling me it's not going anywhere because I've done it. So it is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. That determination more than anything to push through the rejections and the the no's. Yeah. And um she just decided that was what she was gonna do. Uh, when she turned 30 and I just thought, you know what, fair play actually. Do you know what I mean? If you it shows the power of the mind. If you put your you know, we often told, don't we? Oh, if you put your mind to it, blah blah. But yeah. actually I think it's more than just putting your mind to it. It's about having this cast iron belief that you're gonna make the finish line on whatever the goal is. It is. It is, and it's it's enviable, I'm not gonna lie. Uh I wish I had that that's <laughs> that strong self-belief, which I really don't. But yeah, she I thought she was great and I cannot wait to see what happens with this story and where it goes because it's only freshly out in the UK. Mm, mm. Um, so it all feels very new. It's brand new. Yeah. And um, it's been so well received, which is obviously very pleasing all around. I think you'd but... make it, wouldn't you? Don't you think it would make a great Apple TV Plus show? I think they should yeah. sign it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the got kind elements of... of the morning show to it, I felt. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I can. I would love this to become, yeah, a 10, 12 part mm. TV series, I think, that's, you know, really high end. Um, that you can really enjoy. I would love that to happen. And I, I do you know what she's writing next? Do you know what the themes are? You kind of. Um, so no, all I know is that it's completely different to this. She said, okay. it's, I'm not doing anything to do with this. So it's a completely different standalone. And I admire her for that as well. Mm. And then, but I do, I did mean what I said there in, in the pod. I do hope that she returns to these two. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. Really, characters. They kind of lived with me. I finished this book probably about two, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'll, I'll be in the car, and my mind will wander, and I'll go, I wonder what, and then, and it kind of, I'm still in that story, and, and yeah, that's they're really so well formed. They're so yeah. well formed that they, they do feel very, very real, and probably you can recognise elements of people in your life who sit either with Jess or with Josh. Um, yes, yeah, oh, it's so good. Which you it's did so brilliantly, by the way, because I did say this to Cecilia before we started recording. <laughs> I don't think I made it in the actual edit. But I said that there were times when I was reading this book and I felt a little bit drunk because I was going Jess and Josh so often as I was reading it in my mind. Jesh yeah. or Joss mm. or, you know, and it was. Yeah. Yeah, you did. But she said oh, she realized that too difficult to, um, too difficult, <laughs> too difficult to change. To change. Um, should we do a thank you to anybody who has continued to support us by buying us a metaphorical coffee on Kofi? dot com forward slash bestsellers i've got it wrong haven't i <laughs> so nat hates doing this bit right and I'll, i'm just used to i think maybe because of doing stuff on the radio i'm used to doing the plugs so i normally take it but i just sat back there and i thought no go on you've gone for it yeah you've gone for it let's yeah. see how close you get to this yeah even even one line. of the cats came in to like see can she get her way through it no she can't she's messed it up <laughs> What I love about it is, and I've noticed this, you've got this to your voice, where when you doubt yourself, you Do I go up at the inflect end? quite a lot, like Ron Burgundy <laughs> when someone puts a question mark on the teleprompter. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a, it's a very subtle tell. I hide you, it you, so you well. You did it to Cecilia when you went, um, you went, because uh, I believe we're talking to you in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> to talk more about san francisco actually uh i went there a long time ago i'd love to go back but anyway uh do the plug i'll tell i'll tell you yeah i'll tell you my encounter afterwards because it was not good 
but it's not for now, as my mum would say. So if this kind of banal <laughs> back and forth between us is your thing and you'd like to reward it, don't reward bad behaviour, then you can go to ko-fi.com slash bestsellerspodcast. So it's ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash bestsellerspodcast, where you can buy us a nominal brew and we will plough all of the funds back into this podcast so that we can keep it going. We are, I keep pointing this out, mostly because I can't believe it myself, but we are on the longest run that we've ever done, right? Yeah, Which is good. Are. So uh, there may be some school holiday interruption to the process, or there may not if we can cover the gaps well enough. Yeah, let's let's face it, we can uh, we can chat. So that's never going to be an issue. <laughs> Whether there's any uh, educational or engaging basis to said chat, that remains to be seen. But thank you, you can again. Be the judge. <laughs> we will ju- we will judge by how many coffees we get on Kofi or not. Uh, yeah, there's another great one coming soon. So don't go anywhere. And you know what? If you've loved this. I'm not bothered about rate review subscribe. I'm bored of rate review subscribe. You know what I'd love you to do? I would love you to tell three of your mates. That's what I want you to do. Just tell three of your friends. It's a great books podcast. They both bang into their books. They've actually read them, which makes a difference. And then say, go to bestsellers podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. And if you can get three of your friends to get on board, that would mean more to us. That would. Yeah, thank you.